In the last Sefer, Sefer Bereshis, we saw a consortium of personalities. The Abrahams, the Yitzchaks, the Yaakov, we spoke about Yosef and Yehuda. Now we're segueing, of course, into the last four parts of the Torah, and these four parts will be dominated by the only person in the entire Tanakh to be referred to as Eshelokim. So this is a special moment. It's referred to as Taras Moshe. Moshe is the only one with all the Avos to actually ascend to Shemayim. Moshe is the only one with all the Avos to be Panim, Panim, Dibur, Hashem, Yimachem, Pel, Pel, Dabur, Bo. So we're meeting, arguably, in the pantheon of Tzadikim, Again, we don't make power rankings, and we don't make pantheons, and everyone has their own trait. But we're possibly meeting the greatest man to ever live, the greatest spiritual giant to ever walk the planet. And Shemos were introduced to him, but in Shemos there's very little spiritual about Moshe's rise. In Shemos we get a resume of Moshe before he became Moshe. And we get a keyhole into what makes someone into a Moshe. And you don't see any spirituality, you don't see any climbing the heavens or studying Torah. What you do see is you see moral courage. What you do see is you see moral indignance. What you do see is caring for others, and they're not the same, and I'll talk about it. And then we'll try to trace, where does he get it from? And we'll see, not who his mothers were, but who his godmothers were. And we'll talk about some of their lesser-known heroics. There's an important share today, and you'll see some of the issues I'm raising, as opposed to the Sherman Bracious, where there's one central theme, a lot of them, but they're all crucial to identity building. Moshe walks out of the palace of Paro, and he's been given a privileged upbringing. And everyone's suffering in the stinking, sweating, lice-ridden, cake mud world. We're slaves in Mitzrayim. We don't have actual records, but we do have historical records. Slaves in Mitzrayim had to walk around naked. That's why the Jews were so appreciative when they left Mitzrayim, because they received smallos, clothing. And naked was, of course, to embarrass them and humiliate them. They weren't naked. They were filled with dirt and mud and decay and wounds and pus and... And Moshe grows up with a very, very privileged upbringing in the house of Pyro. And he walks out the first day and he sees a Jew being beaten. Pretty much daily, daily occurrences. Happens every day on every street corner. But it's the first time Moshe sees it. And Moshe has a decision to make. And it's a decision we all face. And even if I put it on the Makara so it'll work backwards a little bit. But a decision everyone has to make. And that is what we can actually see. The Pasuk says, Vayihi, it's on the back page. Second source, Now notice in this passage, the word Vayar appears twice. Was he squinting? Did he put on his glasses? There's a difference between seeing and deciding to care. Everyone sees. You can't block what you see. Your eyes see whatever comes in their path, whatever hits your retina. Then you have a decision. Do you want to move on? You want to sequester yourself in your own palace of luxury, in your own fictional world of privilege and, 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 and comfort? Or do you want to care and connect? Now, caring is hard because you forgive yourself, because you feel pain, and most of all, because you feel vulnerability. The greatest care blocker is not wanting to feel vulnerable. Because when someone shows up at your door, if you, if you deeply, deeply engage and empathize with what they're going through, at some point you realize that could be me. And to really care, you have to find the parts of you that are vulnerable and that could face similar struggle. And it's easier just to create a big divide, to create a big mechitzan to say, I've got my world, I've got my comfort, I've got my resources, I've got what I need. Okay, so I'll, I'll write a check, I'll help out. Go on with your checks. They want your heart and your care. And to care, to realize how flimsy and delicate your own world is. Sometimes when I give interviews in, in America, I'll ask boys, do you do any chesed? I just want to know if their world is full of chesed. And again, it's not always a, a test question, because sometimes they just don't have the ability. 
But some people say, my chesed is, yeah, I do groups on Shabbos, or I lane as a kriya, or I do runs for Tom Shabbos, which is all great, they're all important. But I say, but do you do hard chesed? What's hard chesed? Hard chesed is underprivileged, hard chesed is older people, hard chesed is special needs, hard chesed is, remember once a boy really, he asked me, well, what should I do? I want to change this December. What should I do? So take a chesed. So what should I do? He told me that in his school, that teams of people that went and cleaned graves. So go to clean a grave or go to a hospital. Will you face mortality? Will you face delicacy? Will you face fragility of the human condition? It's a wake-up call. It's an important wake-up call because you appreciate what you have rather than resting on your laurels and taking things for granted. So what does the Pasuk say? Vayar b'sivlosam, what does Rashi interpret? The first time he saw. The second time, Vayar the second time, and now which one Rashi is referring to, but look at the third Rashi, Nasan enav v'libo lihos meitzer alayim. You see, Nasan enav v'libo. His eyes saw. Now he applies his vision, and more importantly, he opens his heart, and he thinks about what must it be like to be raped and spat upon, to be whipped and beaten, to not have a home to go to, to have your children ripped away at childbirth. What must that feel like? And especially for Moshe, it's too close for comfort because he could be right back in that position if he forfeits his royal privilege. So all of a sudden you see him someone who's deeply, deeply empathetic. And then... The next day, and of course the next day he's already, he's already a fugitive from the law because he's killed someone. So when you're a fugitive from the law, hint, hint, not that I've ever been, but if I would be, I try to keep a low profile. I try to keep my nose out of other people's business. I try not to provoke the local mafiosos. I would try to go incognito for a couple of times. I check into a Super 6 motel and just stay there for a couple of days. Not that I've ever been on the run, but that's what I would do if I'm on the run. All of a sudden, he's sticking his nose into other people's business. Two Jews are funny. They're two high-profile Jews. They're angry Jews. The Jews who obviously have an axe to grind with other Jews, as their future career pestering Moshe Rabbeinu will prove. And these are the last people you want to rub the wrong way. But Moshe can't. Moshe refuses, because when he sees injustice, he feels indignance. And when you feel indignance, you don't sit down quietly. Rebbe Lechensin once told us in this room that when you ask yourself when you face moral challenges, instead of thinking about the answers in theory, you should choose a moral role model for yourself and ask how that person would respond. I talked about this a little bit in Vayeshev, and Yosef looks out the window and sees the image of Yaakov. Because you know in the quiet tranquility of your own inner thoughts what's right and wrong, but in the heat of the moment when you face pressure and weakness and laziness and fatigue and lust and need, whatever you face, your moral metal, M-E-T-T-L, your moral metal evaporates. So instead of asking theoretical questions, like when's the last time you did something really horrible? Don't offer the answer. Think about it to yourself. Did you know that it was wrong when you were doing it? The answer quite probably is yes. Well, if you knew it was wrong, how come you violated that avera or that moral miscue? The answer is some larger pressure was too overwhelming. And I just panicked in the moment and I needed to do something and I caved into pressure. So evidently it's not so simple. Moral clarity disappears in the heat of the moment. But when you think about human beings and moral energy then you feel more compelled. So ask yourself, or if Aaron told us, not what's right and wrong, but what that person would do in this situation. That was one of my navigational tools throughout life. Ravon Lichtensi became my navigational tool. And whenever I faced traits that I wanted to overcome, moral challenges, weaknesses, I said, how would Rav Lichtensi respond in this moment? Now, I didn't always get it right. I mean, I knew how he responded. I wasn't always able to execute it. But at least I had fixed north, clearly defined for myself. And I couldn't confuse myself or delude myself into moral um, false narratives. So we asked Rav Lichtenstein, as he spoke about this, he said, Rebbe, who is your moral role model? And we all expected him to say intuitively, Rabbi Salavechik. That Rabbi Salavechik, the Rav, his father-in-law and Rabbi Mufat. 
And he said, he didn't say the Rav wasn't, but he said that his moral role model was Rav Aaron Soloveitchik, the Rav's younger brother. I had the opportunity to learn with Rav Aaron Soloveitchik in YU. His moral indignance is irrepressible. He would start a Gemara. I mean, I left the Shir because of this, but it's amazing to see. He was an older person. He would start reading the Gemara, Basula, a very heavy literature accent. And he's talked about Basula. And then he would immediately launch into a tirade against the Reform rabbis who were ruining Orthodox weddings for two hours. But he couldn't help himself. And the next day, we read the next line, and Ronald Reagan, it's just, he went at Ronald Reagan. It was just, but it was a spectacle to just see moral courage, irrepressible, doing what's right, when it's difficult. I had the schuss to see him. I didn't learn that much. Revolution seems like a moral hurricane. He had a moral voice, I call it. He spoke in a different voice, like he was possessed by a dipic when he spoke morally. It was a different voice coming out. To act morally, that the courage to be moral, to take a stand for morality, to do it when it hurts you, when it's difficult. I was thinking about Ravar and Salvation when you think about Moshe. Moshe is acting like Ravar and Salvation. A little Chicago history. Ravar and Salvation used to be the Rosh Hashiva of the Skokie Yeshiva in, in, in Chicago. And you know why he was ousted out? He has to leave. This is 45, 50 years ago. Because he decided to oppose the local Shrita Mafia, the Jewish Shrita Mafia, because they weren't allowing new upstart Shochtim to get into their cartel. Let me tell you guys something. You don't want to go against the mafia. Trust me, I grew up in Brooklyn. I had my run-ins with the mafia some other time, okay? I learned the hard way. You don't, you don't fight the mafia. And you know what you certainly don't fight? The Shrita Mafia. Because A, they got knives. Second of all, they want the money. The last thing you want to do is poke your head into the Shrita Mafia and start making waves. You're punching your ticket if you're lucky, either in a coffin or in an Amtrak train out of Chicago. And that's the way that went down. And you'd walk into the yeshiva. I never were there, but I heard the stories of all-timers. You'd walk into the Skokie yeshiva, who's the Rosh yeshiva, and there'd be homeless people and drug addicts, and just, you know, there's no place to be. Let them come to, I don't mean the yeshiva, Bachar, I mean people from the street who had no place to be, and no place to, to be safe. And I think about Ravar and Salavechik, and similar situations, not as extreme as I saw in Rav Lichtenstein, I think about Moshe What are you doing? What are you doing? Lay low. Put on a mustache or something, a fake mustache. Put on a disguise. People are looking for you. And yet, he cannot tolerate social discord. When our people are being beleaguered, the last thing you want to do is fight amongst yourselves. You know what? That's what our enemies try to do. I'm not talking about Hamas that capitalized on our discord. When you want to defeat an enemy, you sow social discord. How do you sow social discord? Some other time when I train you how to create treachery. But you can sow discord amongst people and break their ranks and fissure them and split them into different groups, and then you've defeated them. So you can either capitalize on social fissures, or you can actually create social fissures. And Moshe says, this is devastating. It's, guys, I'm saying this word, you're going to laugh because you don't see it that way. This is a 200-year Holocaust. Now, the truth is, they were in Egypt for 200 years, and not all of it was persecuting, but about 80 years was. So when people talk about October 7th as a one-day Holocaust, and it was because it had almost every element of Holocaust, even though the numbers were different, Imagine living October 7th for four years in a row, or five years in a row, without the state of Israel. Now imagine living it for 80 years in a row, having your children thrown into the Nile or put into cement walls. So wasn't the Egyptian asking us to build pyramids, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to build the pyramids, I go. It wasn't, you sanitize it in your minds because of all the Pesach cartoons, because you engage in Pesach when you're eight, you never update it. Rape, murder, burning people, throwing in the Nile, arrived the crocodiles, Whatever you saw on October 7th, have it in Mitzrayim. In a different form, different tools, different weapons. Imagine living through 80 years. The last thing we need right now, people fighting about, beating each other to a pulp, raising your hands. Like, why would you even do that? You guys are getting to the point now. 
Again, you want to horse it around, it's fine. See a lot of guys horsing around, fighting, and whatever. That's all fun and games. But you're getting to the point where you've got to learn. You don't solve issues with your fingers. Fingers are not issue solvers. They're food picker-uppers. They're not issue solvers. Learn to use your tongue. Learn to use your mind. Learn to use communication. You've got to get out of that as quickly as possible. You don't solve interpersonal problems by using your fists or your might. And certainly, chaliva v'chas, as you're heading towards marriage, that has to end as soon as possible. And then the next day, it's not really the next day, now he's in a foreign land. Okay, so the last place you want to go is into the bar and pick up fight. You're, you're now on the land from an entire country. The entire country is looking for you. And the best thing to do, you're in Midjan, no one knows your name. Just blend in with the locals. Get a kafia and join the locals. Like, who, who's going to know who you are? Put on a... And he sees women that he has no connection with. These are Goyesha women. They're not even Jewish women. They're Midjanite women. And they're not being, I don't know, assaulted or abducted. It's just, you know, enough water to go around. So he's got to stand in the line. You go last. Yeah. And this is a funny story having nothing to do with it, just because I thought of it one day in 1983 when we were in this room. And Rav was unusually late. Okay. So we're waiting, 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 which is very common in those days because we drove through Beit Lechem. And Beit Lechem always had closures and police activity. We didn't have a bypass road. We drove through Beit Lechem. So it was 10, 15 minutes late based on army activities. But this was unusually late. So at a certain point, we sent out a bachar to go play, as we would call, chicky-chicky. Chicky-chicky means that he's coming, the Rebbe's coming, so we'll get ready. We sent out a young man, a young bachar named Mordechai Friedman. He was the guy who went out to see whether Rav Lichtenstein was on the way or where he was. So Mordechai, young Mordechai, comes back and he says, let me tell you the scene I just saw. The water fountain in yeshiva those days, all the young kids you, you still see, they, not anymore, but they used to walk through yeshiva to get to school. Now there are buses that take them, but it used to be the local alum shvoters would walk across that bridge that leads into the school, so they walk through the yeshiva campus, and on cold days they would walk through the base meadows on their way out to hit that bridge. And there was a lineup of four or five second graders in the water fountain to take a drink of water, and they were spritzing each other and splashing each other and having a good time. And person number five on the line, waiting to get a drink of water, was none other than the Gadol Hadar of Aaron Lichtenstein, waiting patiently for the kids in front of him to finish their water fight, rather than saying, excuse me guys, as I would do, i got to take a drink, you'll have your water fight afterwards. <laughs> and that's the Tzitkas we saw on a daily basis. It wasn't about the brains, it was about the Tzitkas. It was about being a mensch, being a better person, being a kinder person. So yeah, Moshe Rabbeinu, arriving at the water fountain in Midian, with seven Midianite women, and like, who cares? I'll get less water, more water. I'll be spoken to not nicely and, uh, and elegantly. You're on the land. They're going to discover you. Trust me, I've seen too many crimes in TV shows. I know the way it works. You make one wrong move, one bad credit card transaction, they're all over you, okay? Cut up your credit card, crush your phone. I can do this. I know how to be a fugitive, okay? Not, not that I've ever tried. I've watched enough TV shows in my time. Well, I know every TV show of the 70s. Okay? Can't be too hard. Don't go into the bar. Stop picking a fight with the local mob. It's not going to help your cause. Moshe doesn't have such calculations. For Moshe, morality is black and white. It's pretty simple. You do what's right because it's right. I'll say it again. It seems simple. If you make a decision in your life to follow what I just said, I promise you you'll have a morally meaningful and thereby happy life. If you fail... You'll have an errant life and you'll always be running after yourself, covering your mistakes and learning to deal with the guilt you feel at having failed. Because at some point, guilt catches up with you. Psychopaths can only deny their conscience for so long. At some point, your conscience peers through. And you hear talking to you and the accumulated guilt that you've pushed aside and brushed away for years and years, all of a sudden, it's like a ton of bricks. So either you deal with it and you have a healthy conscience or not.
I'd much rather have a healthy conscience than a healthy bank account. So money comes and goes. Healthy conscience, that's really hard to live with. And you can deny it. You can shut it down. You can mute it. But at some point, it wakes up. And you're looking at the mirror and you see a monster. And you don't like what you're seeing. So make the right choices. The right choices you can live with. Not the right choices that are beneficial in the moment. Guys, this is Moshe. This is the Moshe that we see. Namely, translating to your own lives. You've got big aspirations in Avodah Hashem. Big aspirations. There are 30 boys in this room, whatever. I hope 30 boys in this room. Please, Akarish Baruch There should be at least 10 Rabbanim from this room. We need guys like you. Okay, we, uh, you know, news update. We have plenty smart lawyers. <laughs> the world isn't going to, the needle isn't going to be moving, moved dramatically. We get another firm lawyer who can give a shit. That's great. If you want to do that, that's fine. And we have plenty, plenty <laughs> high tech. We don't need more high tech people. I'm not telling, I'm not looking at anyone here. I'm just saying, if you want to move the needle, we need intelligent, sophisticated, passionate people to decide they're going to dedicate their lives to spreading terror in Yerushalayim. If you do that, you'll move the needle. Now, there are a million reasons you may not want to do it. I'm not looking at any one person. But at least know the truth. At least look at reality. Don't shoot the arrow and draw the target. Look at the target and decide where you want the arrow to land. So many times at this stage in life, you shoot the arrow, you decide what you want to be, and then you reverse engineer reality to fit your decision. Okay, it's, it's so crucial in life to get that right because you can uh, you can make the right decisions in life. You can never make the right decisions in life, but if you make decisions with false pretenses, faking yourself out, those are the decisions you regret because you told yourself a story that wasn't true just to justify the decision. Face decision. I go through this all the time with boys. Okay, just for example, some boys probably are thinking about trying to bet right now. I had no intention to speak up, but I want you to think we're clubbing you over the head. If I had not a dollar bill but a dime. For every boy that said in this yeshiva, I'm leaving yeshiva after one year, but I'm going to come back after college, I could retire and buy a mansion. I'm not talking about the guys that were faking me. I'm talking about the guys who were real, who were serious. Because as you know, you're here, your life starts to catch up with you. Friends, marriage, responsibility. It's, and for, you know what? 90% of the guys that don't come back is a good reason. Because when you're 22 years old, it's really hard to come back. Trust me, I know it. I came back as an older person. So I tell boys, you know, I'm not telling you what to do. I can't. It's your choice. But just know that if you walk out after one year, the chances of you coming back are almost zero. And deal with the decision. I don't come back for the winter. I come back. Deal with the decision that whatever decision you make, it's my responsibility to make sure it's a decision you can live with. I don't want you coming back and suing me in ten years of Tarragon. Why just let me make a foolish, you know, make decisions foolishly? I can't make decisions for you. I have responsibility to cut through, cut through the deception, the false deception, and say these are the terms. Now it's your decision based on my knowledge, based on my experience. This is how it's going to play. Each decision you make. You have to decide how you want your life to lead. But I'm giving you training to face and confront decisions and make them rather than run from decisions. So Moshe Rabbeinu is that person. Moshe Rabbeinu is just a mensch, is a good person, is kind, is compassionate. You want to start being an Oved Hashem, start at the baseline. Be a good person, be a kind person. Today is January 3rd. Ask yourself, are you a better and kinder and more caring and sympathetic and sensitive and selfless person than you were September 3rd? If you are, and by the way, throw in less sarcastic, less cynical, because those are less actions but more traits, and traits are harder. If you're veering in that direction, that means you're succeeding. If you're not, then it's time to try to ask yourself, why not? Not time to press the panic button. It's January 3rd. You're still growing. But that's a pretty good bellwether for change. A pretty good bellwether for change. Try to reach back into your past, into your high school. Were you selfish? Were you arrogant? Were you uncaring? Were you unsympathetic? Were you cynical? If that's starting to change, you're in a good place. It's a good barometer that Avodah Hashem is starting to grow. 
If it's not, then try to work at it. Like I've told you every time in this classroom, how do you work on traits? Generally, by osmosis. You can read traits from here to Wazoo in books. Doesn't mean anything, because books are books and life is life. The best way to do is to be friends with people that have good traits. It's a little bit of a shift. In high school, your friends are geographic and cool and athletic. Those are the three parameters. Where do they live? Are they cool? And they'll attract other cool people. Or are they athletic and I'd be on the team with them and I can admire their athletic skills. All of a sudden, you don't want to ever leave friends and abandon friends, but all of a sudden, the guy in high school, like, here's another good mental experiment. Who's the guy or the girl, for that matter? Looking back in high school, you wish you had been more friendly with. Because now you realize, oh, that person really had a great trait, and I could have really learned and grown from spending more time with that person and learning from that trait. But, you know, I was in high school. It's not your fault, but look back. Look back. Don't look back in anger, but look back in, in study. When you look back and say, you know what, I blew an opportunity, and therefore, we determined not to blow another opportunity. It's those little passing opportunities in life that your eyes skip over. They have to learn how to grab. And they don't package themselves in the normal way. They're not cool, they're not neon lights, they're not exciting, they're not sexy adventurous. It's just people are quiet, so you know, that person has a trait. I can learn that trait from that person. So this is Moshe Rabbein. Okay, we don't have time, so I'm going to pass on this one. Okay, we have 15 minutes, i got a lot to say. Surprise, right? Okay, where does Moshe Rabbein get this from? So he obviously gets it from his two godmothers in 15 minutes or less. Uh, 15, I've got the watch here. His two godmothers, not his biological mother, about whom we know very little. But we certainly see Batya. And a one-second sidebar about Batya. Remember, change always has to be integrated and holistic, which means as you grow, don't give up your past. There are things in your past that you can snatch and integrate into your future. Don't shut the door on your past. There are some yeshivas that will tell you that, and that's a different type of growth. That's not the way I like to go. I like to see my life as one long continuum, Better parts, worse parts. But the more identify with my past, and the more connected with my past, the more resources I can draw from my experience. And the more my life is aligned rather than staccato bursts of experience. So, a lot of you in high school, maybe still, don't raise your hand. If you raise your hand, you're probably not. But how many people in high school are rebels? Don't raise your hand, because if you do, you're not a rebel, right? Oh, I'm a rebel. A rebel says, I'm not raising my hand. Okay. So, who in high school, who in high school was rebellious? I was. I can tell you stories, not now. Okay? I can tell you stories. How many times I got kicked out of the class? I was like a cool rebel, whatever. Not cool is not the word, but some other, some other time. Okay? And of course, rebellion and obedience don't easily mix, right? Obedience is submission, playing by the rules, following the codes, being pious, which obviously you can't be defined as a rebel. But trust me, there are times in your life you will have to rebel against your society and its conventions and its sheepish containers that it imposes on you and say, I'm not that way, I'm different, right? There are times, Gabriel, in college, right, where you have to say, I am this, I am not that, and I'm standing tall and firm, and I will rebel, not violently, but I'll have enough inner conviction to stick to my guns and not care about all the loud noise around me because I am me and I rebel against attempts to homogenize or socially conformize. And you know who the first rebel in history was? The first holy rebel? Batya. Batya rebelled against her father. Batya rebelled against her culture. In fact, in Tanakh, in Divrei Hayamim, there's a list of people, and one of the list of people, without spending too much time on it, but let me just show you the, uh, the list here. Uh, where is it? Uh, the passing in Divrei Hayamim. I think we're already getting off track. Okay. So I didn't quote it for you. But one of the names is she's called Merit. One of her nicknames in Divrei Hayamim is called Merit. Right? If you look, I'm sorry, source number three. It says, Aleph, Parak Dalet, Part Aleph. 
Okay, one of the people mentioned there is Ve'ela b'nei Batya Basparo Asher Lakach Mered. It's actually her husband is Mered because according to Chazal, you know who her husband was, nicknamed Mered, also a rebel. You know who the male version of Batya was who rebelled against his surroundings? According to Chazal, Kalev actually marries Batya. Kalev is also a rebel against all these prestigious Ivy. I mean Miraglim who say one thing. A little Freudian slip. Or prestigious Ivy League Miraglim who say one thing. Talk, speak toxic garbage, and they decide I'm going to rebel against it. So, don't give up your rebellion. Learn to use it when it's important. Every trait Hashem put in your heart has a purpose in the time. There is no trait Hashem put in your heart just to taunt you. Every single trait. You have an ego on you, use it. The right way. Every trait. I dare you to come up with a trait that Hashem put into your heart, except for, except for anger and excess arrogance, as the Rambam says. Every other trait has a place. And that's why you have to moderate it, and modulate it, as long as it's in the middle road. Sabachi is the rebel for whom we don't have enough time for, but she doesn't mind because she's a rebel. Let's talk about the other godfather of Moshe Rabbeinu, who is Miriam. This is probably one of the most important ten minutes you will hear in your life. So please listen carefully. I don't have time to read the sources. I'll just read the verses. A man from Levi marries a woman from Levi. What's the backstory? We know who it is. As Amram and Yocheva just come out and say it. Why the mysterious code? Why the cloak and dagger? We know who they are. The answer is, there's got to be a backstory here. Right? There's got to be something happening behind the scenes. And Rashi quotes the matter she fills in the backstory. Amram comes home one day, and this is all going to be very quick, but you've got to get the message. And Amram comes home one day and says, I'm out. I can't do this anymore. I can't pantomime my life and make-believe I'm having children, and make-believe I'm raising a family, and make-believe we're having Shabbos meal, and make-believe we're sitting and learning, when I know that my children are going to end up being meals for crocodiles. This is futile. This is purposeless. I'm out. It's all futile. It's all hopeless. It's all bleak. What type of world am I living in? I'm going to make-believe I'm having another child. I already have two. Thank God they were born before the harsh degrees, so they lived. They were spared. Now we have another son? Are you kidding me? Just to watch him be dismembered by vicious animals, vicious amphibians. So he walks, he says, I'm out. And he either divorces Yochaved or he separates. It's not clear, but they're no longer living together as husband and wife. Because they don't want to have children. And Miriam intercedes. And Miriam enters and says, Abba. So she says it in a, the following way Pyro is decreeing against the males, he's decreeing against the entire population. But you know what Miriam's really saying? Miriam's really saying the following. Real moral courage is holding the line even when the world around you seems bleak. And doing what you do and doing what's right, even though you don't know the broader calculus, you live that Tashem. You don't flinch. You don't shrink in the face of adversity, even if you can't compute how your decisions will affect the future. Some of you may have had, me, had this question in an interview. I don't know who I asked this question to, but I always ask the question in interviews. You go back to one time in Jewish history, where would you go back to? I want to see who you are as a Jew. Before I see who you are as a lambda, I want to see who you are as a Jew, being a good Jew. Who's the best Jew you've ever met in your life? Who isn't from? Now, the best Jew you met, probably, maybe from also, but I'm trying to separate the two identities. Because there's something about being a good Jew. Right? I could reverse the question. Who's the firmest person you've met in life that's just not a good Jew? Because it's part of being a Jew. It can't be captured in punctilious adherence to Allah. It's just part of being a Jew. A proud Jew, a good Jew, a, a living Jew, a caring Jew, an identified Jew, a historical Jew. 
So someone once asked me, where, where would I go back in Jewish history if I could have one setting? One boy just asked me on the interview. I accepted him. I liked his moxie for asking me, for flipping the question back at me. I said, if I go back to one part of Jewish history, I'd like to walk out of Auschwitz with Holocaust survivors. And what do they do in the immediate aftermath? They got married as quickly as they could. Oh, yeah, this is a, my niece from the old shtetl, my friend's daughter, or my sister's brother, but whatever. Just finally somebody to get married, rebuild the family, name children after the people who had been killed and murdered and executed, and just build, build, build. And you ask yourself, 2020 hindsight tells us that those children born in the aftermath of the Holocaust would one day walk in the fields of redemption and dance with a flag around their newly born state in the new history of the Jewish people. But they didn't know that because they didn't have 2020 hindsight. And they were facing madness and chaos and darkness. And you ask yourself, how could you bring people into that nightmarish world? And they did. And I just want to feel the moral energy because I love feeling moral energy. I love feeling people who have moral energy. It makes me alive. And they said, we're just going to do what we do, and I don't know what the future holds. Let us deal with that. We're going to get married. We're going to have children. I don't know where this is all going to land. But I do know this is going to somehow shape history. Don't reverse engineer your decisions based on your inability to compute the future. Do what's right because it's right, even if you don't understand how it's going to one day fall out. Because the world is not driven by headlines. It just seems that way because that's what sells. The world is driven by brave moral decisions that are taken in the quiet of living rooms and bedrooms. And Miriam whispers to her father and says, Abba, this can't be. You have children, and you leave the rest to Hashem. So then he retakes his wife, Vayelech Ishmi Beis Levi Vayikachas Bas Levi, and because he does, all the other Jews reunite with their wives because they're separated from their wives following his lead. So this is really a generic moment and a universal moment. It's not Amram and Yochavit, it's Ishmi Beis Levi Vayikachas Bas Levi because the ripple effects start to affect all the Jewish people. And you know what? Moshe Rabbeinu was born. So if not for Miriam, there is no Moshe Rabbeinu. And if there is no Moshe Rabbeinu, who knows how the rest of the Torah unfolds? Obviously it unfolds, but it unfolds very differently. So who shaped history? Not the politicians, not the diplomats, not the L word, I hate that word, the leaders, when people think of leaders. I was thinking to myself, if someone asked me, one word for leadership, one word, I hate that term because it's so abused. One word for leadership, there have to be sacrifice. I was thinking that I was writing an article, sacrifice. If you're a leader, you sacrifice. That's the ethos of the Israeli army, Acharai. You're the leader, you want to be the officer, be the first off the truck. Everything else is just false, fake, dis, uh, confusing influence and change and, despise, and discussions and bear responsibility, sacrifice responsibility, carry loads, be selfless, and let people watch you. And they'll do the same. And that's how you move people's lives. That's real leadership. The courage to be selfless and to make sacrifice. And how to choose easy paths. So you know who really shaped Jewish history? It was Miriam who shaped Jewish history. What did she do? Did she confront Paro? Did she pick up a weapon? Did she lead a diplomatic counterattack? No. She just quietly told her father, show some courage. And is the courage the valor of the battlefield or the bravery of confronting enemies? No, it's just the courage to steal your conviction, S-T-E-E-L, and dig in your heels and say, I don't know where this is landing, but I'm going to do what's right. I'm going to hold the line and not panic. 
I remember in the second intifada, I remember in the twos, saying goodbye to my wife in the morning who worked in usual line, who drove every day as a pregnant woman with a helmet and a 20-pound ceramic vest because there were shootings every day on the roads. And I said goodbye to her, knowing I may never see her again. And this would be my final goodbye. That was a daily occurrence. And no one's judging people who left, but we just said we have to stay. We can't go anywhere. And we named our daughter to Mimaya Munak. She was born during a time that took great Munak. Now she's married to a Shenahe guy who lives near, uh, I don't know where, in the side. So, and, and that's I told you so many times in this room. There are hundreds of Tarragons in this world. I think they're all Orthodox, whatever. It's not important right now. And all of them are in this world, living their lives because of one person, Mazedi, who made a quiet but courageous decision to leave white Russia in the early 20s no fanfare, wasn't covered in the news. It took a tremendous amount of courage to go to America on some boat penniless and build a world. And that's how you create worlds. You want to be part of the public sphere, that's fine. But don't, don't get intoxicated with it. Don't, learn not to follow the crowds. Learn to be excited by all the hoopla of crowds. It's not where reality lies. If you, if you have to bear that, if you have to be in public settings, and you have to tolerate publicity, and pub, that's great. But learn that in the quiet of moral decisions and moral consciousness and real courage and private decisions, that's where the future is shaped. It doesn't seem that way, but trust me, political policies come and go. Obama's policy came and went, and the tides go in and out, and the maps of lines of countries are drawn and redrawn, and wars are fought, and wars are lost, and wars are. It's all just tides coming in and coming out. And the longer you live your life, the more you realize it's just the tide coming in and the tide going out, the tide coming in and the tide going out. You want to be a surfer, or do you want to put facts on the ground? Facts on the ground are quiet, understated. That's where real leadership lies, where you make changes that don't get headlines and fly under the radar, but make real substantive change in this world. So that's Miriam's heroism. Then Miriam takes that moral stand, and she, be, and she endows Moshe. Obviously, Moshe is not her genetic child, but Moshe's life is spared, and Moshe picks up some of that moral courage from his sister. Two minutes just to show you how moral courage is powerful. What happens? So three months later, Amram comes to the house, slamming his fist on the table because the Egyptians are carrying his three-month-old baby that Miriam convinced him. Actually, it's 12 months, whatever, right? Nine months of pregnancy, three months, right? Miriam convinced him to go back to his wife. So a year later, the Egyptian authorities, the Egyptian execution squads, are now taking little baby Moshe, searching frantically for little baby Moshe, and Miriam and Amram have to gather, and he's angry and furious, and he tells us, the matter says, look what happened with your prophecy, Miriam. Look what happened. This is what you told me, and this is how it ends. So what does the Pasuk say, source number Gimel? She stands by the Nile, watching the basket go down the Nile. Chazal say, this language, source number Dalit, this is all really speed reading. The Tetzav Chosom Erechok is a medrash in B'Shalach, L'de'a Mayasalo, En Yitziva Ela Nevua. Standing is a part of prophecy. The word Vatetzav is prophecy. It's not really prophecy. She doesn't know what will happen. But she doesn't give up hope because the game isn't over. And she stands by the river and says, there's got to be some way out. And then there is some way out, and she's part of the solution. So sometimes it's easy to take a stand in the first round. And then when things go south and the wheels fall off, as they did for Moshe, baby Moshe, or when the, you're over your skis, as they were for adult Moshe in the end of Shemos, and you have to show a little resilience and stick to and perseverance, it's a little harder. So she stands tall in the face of adversity. It's not all going to happen easy for you guys in life. 
The sooner you fail, the better off you are. All you trust fund kids out there who've never failed, you're just living off of fat checks. They have a hard life. I've met people in life about whom I thought they deserve to have failed earlier in life because they never failed, they never fell. Because they never fell, they never learned to get up, they never learned resilience. So adversity and frustration and hardship and facing them and developing the coping skills. So she comes back to the river and she says, okay, now let's see what happens. He's in a basket, game isn't over. Let me see where this basket lands. And that, Chazal say, is not prophecy in the sense that she's getting supernatural information, but it's moral spirit that leads to prophecy. And you see Vela Nebuah. So we know who Moshe is, and we know how Moshe becomes Moshe. Part of it is the defiance of his second godmother, Batya. Part of it is the defiance of his first godmother, Miriam, who isn't a defiant rebel, defying her father. She's just saying, Abba, you do yours and let Hashem do his. You'll have those moments in life, I promise you. And you'll have to tell yourself, I'm going to be Miriam now. I'm going to do what's right. I don't know where this is going to land. It's hard for me to see. But halacha tells me to do such and such, I'll do such and such. So it's not halacha, so that's morality. Moral spirit tells me to act this way, not that way. I like this way, not that way. Even though I don't really know where this is happening, because that's how life changes. And you don't have the large supercomputer or the large algorithms of all human experience. You've just got your two feet ahead of you. Make sure you're putting one foot ahead of the other the right way. And everyone else, Hashem will put the algorithms together to make sure it lands properly.